Welcome to our podcast, Carefully Examining the Text. In the last podcast, we discussed the text of Psalm 74. Psalm 74 is a national lament written after the Babylonians' destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 587 or 586 B.C. In that, the people of God lost the land that God had promised them and that God had given them. They lost the king that God gave them, a king from the line of David to rule over them. That king had his eyes put out and he was made a slave for the rest of his life. And the temple was destroyed. Psalm 74 particularly focuses on the destruction of the temple. And they felt a sense of despair. They felt a sense of defeat. They felt a sense of depression. It seemed like their circumstances were going on perpetually, perpetually. And they asked God to intervene. We're not going to rehash the whole psalm. But you remember the first 11 verses are filled with lament. Verses 12 through 17, speak forth words of praise for God's mighty acts. And then lament returns in verses 18 through 23 as the sons of Asaph beg for God to take action. There was something I missed from Psalm 74, 12 through 17, that I wanted to emphasize. In Psalm 74, verses 12 through 17, the text is emphasizing the mighty hand of God in delivering his people and how God has shown his power, his might, his greatness in times past. That's focused on in Psalm 74. 12 through 17. But one thing in particular that I didn't describe is when the Bible describes the sea monsters in Psalm 74, 13, or the Leviathan in Psalm 74, verse 14, what exactly is that talking about? Other cultures around Israel had stories of how the world came to be. How can we have a world here in the first place? How did it come to be? Each of these nations wrote their creation stories, exalting their God as chief over all. And one of the things they did is they pictured their God defeating some great monster of the sea and putting the sea back in its place so that life could go on among people on dry lands. The Babylonians did that and made Marduk the hero. The Canaanites did that and made Baal the hero. They pictured Baal and Marduk slaying this great sea monster, this Leviathan in the midst of the sea. The things that the other nations around Israel attributed to their God, the Bible says, are not true of their gods. It is not Marduk who does this. It is not Baal who does this. It is Yahweh. It is Israel's God who does this. He is the one who broke the heads of the sea monsters. He's the one 
who crushes the heads of Leviathan. The Israel's God is mighty to save. But in a certain sense, God's great power only highlights the dilemma even more. Because if God is so powerful and so mighty to save, why is it that he isn't? Now, in the rest of the podcast, we hope to do a couple of things. First of all, I want to show you some links between Psalm 73 and Psalm 74. Remember, Psalm 73 as Psalm 74 are both described as a psalm of Asaph or a mascal of Asaph. So Asaph is mentioned in the heading of both psalms. But you notice in Psalm 73, 17, that as the writer was confused about the prosperity of the wicked, things seemed to make sense when he came into the sanctuary of God in 73, 17. But this word sanctuary is used again in Psalm 74. In Psalm 74, verse 3, the enemy has damaged everything within your sanctuary. In Psalm 73, 4, they have burned your sanctuary to the ground. The sanctuary, which was a place of worship in 73, 17, in 74, has been destroyed. He came to an understanding of God's place in the world and the precarious position of the wicked when he came into God's sanctuary. But where can he go now for that viewpoint? For the sanctuary has been destroyed. In Psalm 73, the writer was troubled in verse 6 about these wicked people who wear pride as a necklace and the garment of violence covers them. He is disturbed by their violence in 73, verse 6. But in 74, in 74, in verse 20, now the whole land is filled with places of violence. And it seems like God's not doing anything. In Psalm 73, verse 23, the text says, You have taken hold of me by my right hand. God held him up by his right hand. But his right hand, God held him, God led him, God guided him in 73, verse 23. But God in 74, verse 11, is keeping his own right hand in his cloak in his bosom, failing to take action against the wicked. In Psalm 73, in verse 18, the writer begins to have a better appreciation for things when he goes into the house of God, when he turns to God as an object of worship, and he sees in verse 18, 73, 18, that God has cast down the wicked to destruction. He has cast them down to destruction. Now, that word for destruction is only used as a plural two places in the Old Testament, in 73, 18 and in 74, verse 3. Turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins or destruction. Same word 
as used in 73.18. In 73, he sees the precarious position of the wicked, that they are set for destruction, for ruin. But in 74.3, that's exactly what the temples experience. Destruction and ruin. Putting these psalms together only increases the problem that the writer had in the first 14 verses of Psalm 73. Why is it that the wicked are prospering and the wicked and the righteous are always afflicted? Why? Why does this happen? Those links provide a powerful lesson And friend, I am not claiming that I know all the answers to the why or how long. If I was experiencing some of the things that you all are experiencing, I would be asking those same questions. At times, these questions come to me, to every one of us. I know that. God knows that. And God raises these questions and addresses them in these passages to help us in our situation. But I do want us to see, I do want us to see that Jesus, in his life and especially his death and resurrection, does provide some answers to the questions of Psalm 74. And let me illustrate We pointed out that the word for signs was used three times in Psalm 74. In verse 4, twice, and then again in Psalm 74 and verse 9. In verse 9, the text says, We do not see our signs. There are no signs of God's presence, of God's power evident around them. But the enemy's signs were loud and clear. In verse 4. But the same word that's used for signs there in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used in the New Testament to talk about the miracles of Jesus. In passages like John 2.11, John 6.2, John 9.16, John 10.41, 11.47, And we could go on. But they use the word for signs. The word that John uses for signs, uses for the miracles of Jesus. That is the word that's used here when he said we see no signs. My point, God has left us some signs of his presence in Jesus dwelling among men. They said we had no sign and we have no prophet. And yet in Jesus, we have a sign and a prophet. He is described as a prophet in Matthew 21, verse 11 and verse 46. Particularly in the Gospel of Luke, you see this emphasis in Luke 7, 16, Luke 7, 39. Luke 24, 19. He is the prophet like Moses, Acts 3, verses 22 and 23. In Jesus, we do have signs. In Jesus, we do have a prophet. We do have a prophet. I am not saying 
that that eliminates all problems. But I am saying that signs of God's presence and signs of God's rule in the world have been demonstrated in the person and power of Jesus Christ. Also, the text says, the text tells us that these enemies have reviled and spurned God's name in verse 10 and in verse 18. The word for revile is the word reproach that's used in Psalm 69 verse 9. The reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen upon me. A passage that's quoted of Jesus' cross. In Romans 15, verse 3, Jesus has experienced this reproach. The reproach that has been done to God's name was experienced by Jesus in his earthly life. The word that's translated spurn, this word, when it was translated into the Greek translation, the Septuagint, is the same word to describe the insults hurled at Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 44, in Mark 15, verse 32. Jesus' death on the cross endures this pain. Jesus knows what it's like to be reviled. He knows what it's like to be insulted. He knows what it's like to be shamed. All the reproaches that the people have directed to God's name and God's people have been borne by Christ. How? How long? Why? The questions are asked. I don't know all the answers. But I know Jesus has been through those kinds of experiences. God has been through these experiences in the person of his son, Jesus. And while God is exalted as king, in verse 12, Jesus is proclaimed king, particularly around his crucifixion in John 19. Verses 19 through 22. I can understand how the question could be asked. How could your God be the most powerful God? I understand how that question could have been asked to the Jewish people. You've lost your land and you're in slavery. You have lost your king. You don't even have a ruler over you. And you've lost your house where God's worship. Your God is the greatest of gods. Jesus knows something about that. For as Jesus was hanging on the cross, people could ask, if you were really God's servant, why would you be in that place? Why would you be suffering like this? But I will tell you, just as God demonstrated his great power, in crushing the heads of the sea monster, in crushing the heads of Leviathan, in verses 13 and 14, he crushes Satan underfoot. Satan is viewed as the dragon of old in Revelation 12, verse 9, in Revelation 20, verse 2. Whatever is meant by the defeat of Leviathan and the sea monsters is ultimately a portrayal, a foreshadowing of one of the final acts of history where God will completely crush Satan 
and throw him into the lake of fire. And God's power that broke Leviathan and broke the sea monster, God's power is demonstrated in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. God's power is demonstrated, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4, Ephesians 1, verse 19, and verse 21. And through this death and resurrection of Jesus, God has redeemed his people in Psalm 74 and verse 2. That word redeemed, the word from the Greek translation being used three times in the New Testament in Luke 24, 21, in Titus 2, 14, and 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. All situations that speak of the redemption through Christ. And just as God's people are described in Psalm 74 as poor and afflicted, so the poor have the gospel preached to them, Luke 4, 18 and 19, and Luke 6 and verse 20. I may not have done a good job of stating all those things, and I'm sure other points could be made, but I am saying that when we ask why, and we ask how long, it may only be the cross and resurrection that is powerful enough to give us an answer. The cross gives us an answer, and they show that God has experienced the suffering that we're familiar with and that we endure. God knows of our pain and our heartaches. God enters into our pain, our grief, our despair, if we would call it that. But also, the power of the resurrection shows us that defeat and discouragement and despair is not the end for the people of God. That there will be a resurrection in power. There will be a victory we serve a crucified Savior, but we serve a risen one. And the victory, the victory will one day be ours. To you, to God, be all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.